The Brain Science Podcast is part of sciencepodcasters.org, the website where you can find high-quality science podcasts from a wide variety of fields. Welcome to the Brain Science Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 89. Today, I have an interview with philosopher Evan Thompson about his book, Mind in Life, Biology, Phenomenology, and the Sciences of Mind. If you are new to the Brain Science Podcast, you need to be aware that this is an episode that does have some reliance on previous episodes. Last month's episode, the interview with Bruce Hood, might be a better place for you to start. However, feel free to listen to this episode, and then you can always come back to it later after you have a little bit more background. I try to make every episode of the Brain Science Podcast stand alone, but as I said, this is one of those episodes that is actually a continuation of several topics we've talked about in the past. Some of you may recognize Dr. Thompson's name because he was the co-author of one of the pioneering books about embodied cognition. That book was The Embodied Mind, Cognitive Science and Human Experience, which was published in 1991. His co-authors were Francisco Varela and Eleanor Roche. We've been talking about embodied cognition on and off since the first year of the Brain Science Podcast. I'm going to have links to all these earlier episodes in the show notes. Another ongoing topic that has been somewhat controversial is the concept of emergence. I recently interviewed Terence Deacon about his new book, Incomplete Nature, How Mind Emerged from Matter. One of the issues that this brought up was the question of whether there is another level of explanation needed to get from the emergence of life to the emergence of mind. Deacon argued that there is, while Dr. Thompson argues that there is a deep continuity between life and mind that makes this additional level unnecessary. Needless to say, I can't resolve this question in a single podcast, so I want to emphasize that Deacon and Thompson share the view that the emergence of life is an entirely natural process that can be explained with the tools of natural science. They both see the mind as something that must be put into an evolutionary context, and they also share an appreciation for the importance of explaining the experiential nature of the mind. So despite the differences in approaches between incomplete nature and mind in life, Deacon and Thompson are mostly in agreement. This is especially true when it comes to the issue of emergence, but I think that will become clear from the interview. Unfortunately, there are some problems with sound quality in this interview, so I want to remind you that a free transcript of this episode is available at brainsciencepodcast.com. That's also where you will find the complete show notes and links to related episodes. If you want to send me feedback, you can send me email at docartemis at gmail.com. Evan, I want to welcome you to the Brain Science Podcast. I've gotten lots of requests to have you on the show, so I know my listeners are in for a treat. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to join you on the show. Perhaps you could start out just by telling us a little bit about your background. Well, my background is principally in philosophy. That My PhD is in philosophy. 
But I actually started out as an undergraduate in Asian studies. So my first degree, my bachelor's degree from Amherst College was in Asian studies, and I studied Chinese history and Chinese language and Chinese philosophy. Well, really Asian philosophy overall, with a focus on Buddhist philosophy. And that's actually what led me into my interest in philosophy. I went in the other direction from the way some people usually go, going from east to west rather than from west to east. So I decided to go to graduate school in philosophy. And when I was a graduate student, I, I really got drawn into philosophy of mind and, and cognitive science. This was in the early 1980s. These were areas that were really emerging into prominence in philosophy. Uh, there was a lot of excitement. And so I got pulled into that. And that's really what I've been working on ever since, though I've certainly kept an interest in other areas. I, I still work a lot with Asian philosophical traditions doing what now today is called cross-cultural philosophy. So I try to, you know, cover a number of different areas. But my sort of home base, you could say, is philosophy of cognitive science. Well, I certainly identify with that because I spent a lot of time myself reading Eastern thought before I ever came around to Western philosophy. And then I, then I discovered philosophy of mind, and that brought me back to neuroscience and kind of indirectly led to this podcast. So we have something in common there. So you chose to go ahead and go to graduate school and study philosophy. When did you come into contact with Francisco Varela? Well, that's an interesting parallel story in a way. I first met him through my father, William Irwin Thompson, who is a writer. And I met him in the mid-1970s when I was about 14 or 15. My father had founded an, an organization called the Lindisfarne Association. And this was an organization that brought together scientists and philosophers and artists and ecologists and political activists. It was a very eclectic group of people. And he organized a conference with Gregory Bateson, who was also a friend of his and an anthropologist and in many ways you could say a kind of proto-cognitive scientist. Right. Francisco Varela came to one of the conferences that my father organized, and so I met him at that point. And then he came and lived with us at the institute that my father was running. And so he really was a family friend from my early teenage years. Then when I was in graduate school, this would have been around 1986, he had just moved to Paris where he was taking up a position in neuroscience. And he had a long-standing interest in Buddhist philosophy, and he wanted to write a book bringing together his interests in Buddhist philosophy and neuroscience and cognitive science. And he knew I was interested in the same things, and so he brought me to Paris for a summer as a research assistant. It was really out of that initial working together, or my working for him as a research assistant, that we then wrote our book, The Embodied Mind. That was in many ways kind of parallel to all of my academic training. Well, really, I had known him before I even went away to college and then wound up working with him as a graduate student. That's really interesting. I, I am familiar with the Lindisfarne Association, although I have to admit that I was never able to read Gregory Bateson. I mean, I just found his writing impenetrable. Maybe I could read it now. Maybe I'm more used to reading hard stuff. But back in the 70s, when I was college age, I found it too dense. But at any rate, the embodied mind my impression, because I've covered embodied cognition several times over the last few years, is that it's one of the foundational texts of the movement. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think that is fair to say in the sense that when the book came out, as I said, we started writing it in 1986. It appeared in 1991. 
And it was one of the first books. It wasn't the only one, but it was one of the first ones to really identify this movement of embodied cognition and to present it in a way where it was a logical development within the history of cognitive science out of earlier periods of work that we called cognitivism, or as some people know it, the computer model of the mind, and then connectionism or neural network research. This was the milieu in which we were writing, and we wanted to push the ideas further to point towards the importance of the body and the embodied context of cognition, the way the body shapes our perception and our action. And as I say, we weren't the only ones to do this, but we were, I think, one of the first books to try to pull a number of different threads together in the emerging interest in embodiment and to give it some kind of conceptual theoretical framing that then I think did prove to be useful for people, for researchers. And so it has come to be identified as one of the you know, early foundational statements of that movement. Yes. Is it in that book that the idea of the inactive approach first appears? Yes, that's right. So we used the term inactive at that time to point towards a particular way of thinking about the importance of embodiment. And that was a way of thinking that emphasized that the mind isn't an inner theater where you receive sensory impressions and they get translated into a representation in the head and then you produce some kind of motor output that leads to some behavior that rather cognition, particularly perception, is an active process or inactive, as we called it, that depends on having a body with certain kinds of sensory motor skills and habits. We use the term inactive really to signal that idea. Over the years since then, that term has become more refined and more precise in relationship to the general movement of embodied cognition. But the embodied mind was where that approach was first put forward. So nowadays you will see the term inactive used to signal a particular orientation within the embodied cognition movement, if you like, which not necessarily all embodied cognition theorists would share, but which would be recognized as one particular way of articulating the embodied cognition approach. What I tried to do in my more recent book, Mind and Life, is really actually to develop more precisely those inactive ideas. Great. And I want to get into that in just a minute, but to continue putting these ideas a little bit into the historical context, especially for younger listeners, in both of your books, because I know you do this in Mind and Life too, you describe the difference between embodied cognition versus cognitivism and connectionism. Cognitivism, that's basically what's meant when people talk about the cognitive revolution. That was a reaction to behaviorism, correct? That's right. So it's like the behaviorists acted as if the brain didn't matter, and then the cognitives came along and put everything in the head. This is kind of my take on it. They put everything in the head. The connectionists came along and said, well, the computer model doesn't work. You need a neural net model. But they were still putting everything in the head, so everybody was ignoring the body. So then along comes embodied cognition. And then the inactive approach also says not only is the body important, but then there's that whole interaction or the body is an active, the mind is active. Is that a fair characterization of where we're trying to go? That's right. So I would say that to simplify, there's maybe two important threads. So one is the thread that you just identified in the narrative that you just gave. 
And then the second way of articulating that would be to say that the conception of the mind or what we think the mind is and what we think the mind does that ran through cognitivism and connectionism was a representational conception. So the idea there is that mental processes are ones where you manipulate a representation in the head of the outside world. And the inactive approach and many embodied cognition approaches in general challenged that kind of representational thinking and pointed rather to the way that the cognizer or the cognizing agent, the animal or the person, if you like, the way that the agent interacts with the environment and isn't a passive representer of the environment, but actively shapes the environment in a way that makes it meaningful for that kind of agent. So it was a movement away from representation towards action or interaction. That would mean that every animal's world, I think you used the phrase, which of course is not original to you, of the umwelt, every creature's world will be not some abstract representation in their brain, but directly a result of their particular body interacting with the world. That's right. That's right. So every type of organism or artificial agent, for that matter, if you're thinking in terms of robotics, would have its environment, its lived world, we could say, to use a phenomenological term, that is going to be a reflection of the kind of bodily structure that makes up that kind of being. So the way the world is perceived, the way it's acted in, the way it's conceptualized is going to depend on the bodily structure and capacities for action that that body has. If you wanted to formulate it in terms of a hypothesis, so for example, this is the way that Lawrence Shapiro puts it, which I think is a nice way to put it, is that the embodied cognition hypothesis or working assumption is that the way we cognize the world is strongly shaped by the kinds of bodies that we have. And so correspondingly, the way that other creatures or agents cognize the world is going to be strongly shaped by the kinds of bodies that they have. As a non-philosopher and non-neuroscientist, that seems very sensible to me. Yes. I, I mean, I think from a biologist's point of view, I think it's a very intuitive idea. It's not terribly startling. And of course, the idea of the umwelt goes back to Jakob von Exkull and the foundations of ethology in the early 20th century. But it's important to remember that cognitive science in its cognitivist form and even into its connectionist form was often pursued very independently of biology was really seen, at least on an extreme view, as just a mere matter of sort of implementation details, that what was really important was the software, not the hardware. But then when the roboticists started trying to build stuff, they realized that that just didn't work. That's right. Evan, is there anything else that we need to talk about before we move directly into discussing your book, Mind in Life? Do we need to talk about phenomenology before we jump in there, or can we just make that part of that conversation? We can make it part of that, but maybe one thing that would work as a kind of carryover from one part of the discussion to the next is that we also, in the embodied mind, try to point to the importance of complementing cognitive science with a phenomenological perspective on what it's actually like to experience having a mind, what our lived experience as bodily beings is like. In the embodied mind, we did that particularly around issues having to do with the nature of the self. And so we drew a lot on Buddhist philosophy and phenomenology, which is very insightful around the understanding of the self. But that's a thread that was unique to the embodied mind among the other embodied cognition works of the time. And it's a thread that 
that carries over into mind and life where phenomenology, particularly now in the form of Western phenomenology, which we gave somewhat short shrift to in the embodied mind, Western phenomenology becomes very important for me in, in mind and life. Well, what is phenomenology and why would there be such a thing as Western phenomenology? Well, phenomenology, in the most general terms, is the study of experience, you could say, from the point of view of experience itself. It's the attempt to describe what our lived experience is like. And when I use the term Western phenomenology, that's somewhat artificial in a way, because the word phenomenology, after all, is a Western word. But I mean to identify a particular tradition within philosophy that was very concerned with understanding the structure of consciousness, of conscious experience, and then in some of its phases with embodiment, with what phenomenologists call the lived body. So these would be thinkers like Edmund Husserl and Maurice Merleau-Ponty. So these are German and then French philosophers of the early 20th century. And in the embodied mind, although we looked to Merleau-Ponty very much as an inspiration, we were somewhat dismissive of Husserl in ways that I later came to see were not correct. And so I tried to correct that in mind and life. So in the embodied mind, we drew, as I said, more from Buddhist thinking, which is also very phenomenological in the sense that it's concerned with our experience and what our experience actually feels like. Say, for example, in the embodied mind, our concern, again, was with the sense of self, what it feels like to have a self. So in that general sense of the term, it, it indicates a concern with the importance of taking account of experience in our understanding of the mind. This really, I think, became very clearly recognized as an important issue in the 90s with the whole explosion of the interest in consciousness. And that was an explosion that you know, happened in neuroscience with the neuroscience of consciousness. It happened in philosophy of mind. So there's a, a number of ways in which phenomenology then becomes especially important when we're trying to get a handle on the nature of consciousness. So by definition, phenomenology takes the position that subjective experience and consciousness matter. They're not epiphenomenon. Yes. From a phenomenological perspective, you could say in a way they have a kind of primacy in our knowledge because they're the phenomena that we know most immediately and intimately. And they're the basis upon which we are able to do anything, including science. So all of science depends on observation, and observation depends on consciousness. So the idea that consciousness could somehow be marginal or epiphenomenal, from a phenomenological standpoint, really doesn't make any sense. Let's get into talking about mind and life. And of course, we'll talk more about phenomenology and neurophenomenology as we get into that. Evan, do you want to start by just kind of giving us a brief overview of what your intention was with this book? Well, the core idea of the book is really that we can trace a continuous path from the emergence of life into the emergence of mind and the emergence of consciousness and subjectivity in the, in the sense that we know it from our own experience. In order to do that, I tried to weave together material from cognitive science, from neuroscience and psychology, particularly from the embodied cognition perspective, and even more particularly from the inactive perspective that we had developed earlier in the embodied mind. I tried to weave those elements together with a phenomenological account of the structure of our experience of perception, of emotion, of bodily experience, and also then thirdly with material from evolutionary and theoretical biology. So it's those three strands, I suppose, of biology, the sciences of mind or cognitive science, and 
phenomenology, phenomenological philosophy that I tried to weave together into this story, you could say, about the emergence of life and mind and, and consciousness, and consciousness traced all the way through into human intersubjective or social consciousness, which is where the book ends. A guiding idea through the book is the idea of self-organization. So I draw a lot on notions coming from the study of self-organizing systems in biology and also in neuroscience to some extent. And I try to show how the tools that come from the study of self-organizing systems are very illuminating for an understanding of cognition and perception and also have echoes, you could say, in aspects of our own experience and how it organizes itself in time as a kind of flow or stream of consciousness. So the book covers a lot of ground, but that's in very, very general terms what the book is about. Obviously, we can't really do all those three strands the justice that they deserve. I think I'm going to probably concentrate mostly on the embodied cognition and how that interacts with the phenomenology for today. And then I promise you that in my closing comments, I will give my, re- uh, my listeners a sense of what the other aspects of the book are like, especially since listeners have different backgrounds and will be interested in different aspects of the discussion. I personally have a deep interest in embodied cognition, how it relates to emergence and dynamic systems, but I'm not sure exactly where to start because it seems like those are so interrelated. You've already talked about the fact that embodied cognition implies an active involvement in the world and that the mind is embedded both in the body and and in the environment. So what about the issue of autonomy? Because that seems to be one of the things that really sets your discussion apart from some of the others that I've read. Yes. So I would say that the notion of autonomy or of autonomous systems is really, in a way, one of the distinctive notions of the inactive approach within the larger setting of embodied approaches. So let me say something about what we mean when we use the term autonomous. An autonomous system is one that, in a sense, creates itself through its interactions with its environment. The paradigm example, and in a way the best understood example, of an autonomous system is a living cell. If you want to think of it at, at say, the simplest, so-called simplest level of of a single bacterial cell. What a cell does is that it constantly makes itself as a unity, and it does that through internal metabolic processes, so internal chemical reaction networks that produce or synthesize their own components, among which are the semi-permeable boundary or membrane, which houses all of the reactions, which in turn create themselves and create the membrane boundaries. So the whole thing through a kind of bootstrap or recursive or self-referential process constructs itself so that it emerges as an individual in a dynamic relationship with its environment. When I talk about emergence and autonomy, that's the paradigm case for me of getting a handle on what we mean. So to come back to just the term autonomy, autonomy, I mean, literally it means self-governing. So there's a sense in which a system like that is not externally controlled through inputs and outputs, but creates itself in such a way that its inputs are always a function of what it's doing, of its outputs. So there's a constant way in which it holds together in a self-organizing manner that makes it have this individuality and 
and directedness in relationship to the environment so that some things, if we're thinking of the cell again, some things are meaningful or significant for it and other things aren't. So that a bacterium, you know, will swim in a certain way up a sucrose gradient and away from other things noxious. So this is really what I mean by uh, autonomy. You mentioned the semi-permeable boundary. Now, an autonomous system, by definition, doesn't need to have a boundary, right? So this actually brings us to a special type of autonomous system that you talk a lot about in the book. Yes. So here we need to distinguish between what we call autopoiesis, which is a term that is used to refer to specifically the kind of biological or biochemical autonomy at a molecular level that we see in a living cell. So the example that I was just going through is one of a system that's autonomous, but it's autonomous in a very special way. It's autonomous in an autopoetic, which literally means self-producing way, where it produces itself as a bounded molecular system. Now, in principle, you could have other autonomous systems that have an individuality that they create themselves, but that isn't bounded in that molecular way. So, for example, the nervous system is distributed throughout the body, but it doesn't close back on itself in a bounded way because, of course, it's within the body that is providing the organismic boundary. But it has autonomy in the sense that all of the processes close back upon themselves in the mathematical sense of closure. That is, any effect or any process within the nervous system is the result of at least one other process in the nervous system, and of course actually many, and also gives rise to other processes in the nervous system. So there's a way in which the system kind of is like a snake biting its own tail. It closes back on itself. So that's really the core idea of autonomy, is that kind of closure. And autopoiesis, the molecular cellular form, is a paradigm of that in the sense that it's one that we, you know, we really have an awful lot of knowledge about. We can see it in a, you know, in a very concrete and detailed way. So if we, for the purposes of discussion, accept the premise that autopoiesis is a essential quality of, of living things, and you did mention in the book that Varela had talked about this as far back as 1979, so it's not exactly a new idea, it's just one that people are coming to appreciate more now that they have the tools to deal with the math and all. But you mentioned the importance of it being thermodynamically far from equilibrium. Why is that important? Thermodynamically far from equilibrium means that there are processes going on where there's a constant exchange of matter and energy across the boundary, in the case of a cell, in a way where that is actually altering the boundary conditions of the cell itself. So the cell, in taking in materials and excreting materials, is constantly altering its immediate environment in a way that keeps it going as a locally reduced form of entropy. Far from equilibrium is a very, very general notion, of course, that holds for candle flames and vortexes of water and, and many kinds of dissipative systems. What's more, I think, important, at least for the inactive approach, is the special form that that takes when you have this kind of closure that is the closure of autopoiesis or of autonomy. So far from equilibrium, thermodynamics is really, it's a very, very general framework. But something like a vortex requires an external application of energy. It's not self-producing. Well, it's self-organizing, but of course, all self-organizing systems depend on energy from the environment. But there is a sense in which life is different from something like a vortex. That's what I was trying to get at. 
I see what you mean. Yes. I mean, there's many differences. One is that the living cell, in terms of the molecular species that make it up, is far more heterogeneous than a vortex. And as a result of all of the ways that those molecules can interact among themselves, they produce self-organizing dynamics that's very different from a candle flame or a vortex. And one of the differences is that they strongly alter the boundary conditions of their own individuality so that the cell is adaptively regulating itself, changing itself in relationship to local environmental circumstances in a far more complicated and rich way than a candle flame or a vortex. But then is this whole autonomy and autopoiesis the beginning of how self emerges? In the case of autopoiesis, the kind of autonomy that belongs to the living cell, I see that as where we really can start talking about individuality in a way that marks a difference between the living and the non-living. It's not a hard and fast difference. Of course, there can be boundary cases and blurry cases. But just in terms of the concepts, the kind of individuality that we have with an autopoietic system where it produces itself and regulates itself adaptively in relationship to an environment so that some things are significant and other things aren't. It's the first case of an individual with a milieu or an umwelt or an environment And that then carries through for the rest of evolutionary history all the way to us. So it marks, I think, a very important point of emergence in trying to understand the precursors, if you like, of mind and cognition. Yeah, it seems to me that once we've got a self, subjectivity is sort of implied. Well, that's a very tricky question. Some philosophers have certainly, and scientists actually, biologists, have wanted to argue that already in the case of a cell, we have a kind of subjectivity or proto-subjectivity. I have some sympathy for that. I mean, it's an open question, but I would prefer to say that in the case of a living cell, we have the emergence of a kind of, this is another term I use in the book, a kind of sense-making individual, a kind of being for whom certain events in the environment are significant and others aren't. And if you just were to look at the world from the perspective of physics, you would miss that. And that that sense-making is then a critical precursor for subjectivity. If we use the word subjectivity in the sense to mean the feeling of being alive or the feeling of having a self, well, I think probably that might be imputing too much to the back. Right. I see what you're saying. I wouldn't say that it's to be just automatically shut down, but we tend to think of that as requiring the kind of complexity and organization that comes with the nervous system. But still, the approach that you're discussing here really emphasizes that there's a deep continuity between life and mind. And then, according to Damasio's current way of thinking of it, mind's been around a long time, consciousness, not so long, but that it's all a continuity. Yeah, I think I certainly, in my book, am trying to present an account in which there is that kind of continuity of mind and life, yes. And so in that sense, you know, I'm sympathetic to Damasio's way of formulating it. This episode of the Brain Science Podcast is sponsored by Audible.com, the world's leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. Many of the books featured on the Brain Science Podcast are available, including Antonio Damasio's latest book, Self Comes to Mind, Constructing the Conscious Brain. If you are not already a member, you can get a free audiobook download by going to audiblepodcast.com forward slash brain science.
Of course, the main support for this podcast comes from donations by listeners like you. Before we talk a little bit more about the phenomenological, I want to just touch briefly on the relevance of dynamic systems theory as it relates to autonomous systems. Assuming we take the point of view that life is a a dynamic system and so therefore the nervous system is a dynamic system, what are the implications of that? I mean, I would prefer to see dynamic systems theory as really just one tool that we have for trying to understand autonomy and for trying to understand emergence and life and mind and so on. What I'm trying to get at is, as a tool, it brings out some important aspects of the system because they are important aspects of dynamic systems, such as the relevance of time. Yes. So for looking at processes that are intrinsically temporal, that is, that are what they are because they unfold over time, for trying to get a handle on systems that are highly nonlinear, that is, that are very sensitive to initial conditions and can diverge in their behaviors along different pathways as a result of very small differences in their initial conditions that are also resilient and adaptive in response to perturbations and fluctuations in the environment that also depend critically on noise as a source of adaptivity. That's sort of the home of dynamic systems theory in science is trying to characterize systems of that sort. So it's natural to draw on dynamic systems theory to try to get a handle on autonomy in a way in which say, traditional computational tools coming from the computer model of the mind really weren't so helpful for. Yes, and that's a key point that I was trying to get at. For example, the fact that inputs and outputs in that sort of static sense that they exist in computation just don't fit dynamic systems and they don't fit life. Yes. You made a real interesting comment in the book that really struck me, and you were talking about metastability and the fact that that's what makes it possible for the system. This, I think, is almost a quote from your book. The system can generate its own content and even change its state without outside control. And since that really fits what we're now learning about what the brain is really doing, I found that really caught my attention. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting work that's being done on metastable you could say, metastable dynamical regimes and their application to the brain in different areas. And one of the features of a metastable system is that it doesn't really have states in a classical sense. It has rather transients. That is, it initiates a certain process and moves towards a behavior that it looks like it's going to settle down into some regularity in, but then it doesn't ever really arrive there. It moves off again towards another pathway and then moves back. And so it's always in a kind of transient mode and never really settles down. And a number of theorists have pointed to this as a potential source of adaptivity and you could even say creativity or also resilience in the face of a constantly changing dynamic environment. So I'm thinking, for example, of work by people like Scott Kelso at Florida Atlantic University, who works a lot on motor control and neurodynamics. Carl Friston in London has written a lot about metastability and the nervous system. This was a theme that was very important to Francisco Varela in the very last years of his life, around 2000-2001. So it's a very promising idea. I mean, the way I dealt with it in Mind and Life is is really, in a way, you could say more speculative, but there's a lot of promise to the idea, I think, in research that's being undertaken in different areas. 
Well, some of my listeners are students who might be ones that might figure out more about this in the future. You never know. I hope so. I want to move into the issue of cognition. I think there was a quote from one of Varela's co-authors presenting the idea that living systems are cognitive systems. Where do you come down on that? So the expression he used was living systems are sense-making systems. The reason he chose the word sense-making is because if you say living systems are cognitive systems, then, you know, immediately people are going to think, well, a bacterium isn't cognitive in the way that, you know, a human being is cognitive. And he wanted to have a more general way of talking about how the organism already at the very beginning of life creates a world of significance. So I'm sympathetic to wanting to put it that way, that is, in terms of sense-making versus cognitive. But if we're using cognitive in a very general sense to mean being able to behave in an effective way or in an adequate way where the behavior is a result of one's own individuality as a complex self-organizing system, so that's a very general sense in which we could use the word cognitive, then I think it's fair to say living systems are cognitive. In a cognitive science context, people usually want to say something more restricted when they use the word cognitive, so then it might not be so helpful. But there it kind of becomes a verbal question. What I liked about it was that it sort of emphasizes one of the themes of your book, which is that there's that deep continuity between life and mind in that action sense. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I would put it now, I think, is I would say living systems are sense-making systems. And cognition is a kind of sense-making. Cognition in the more restricted sense that, you know, we would use the term in cognitive science. So the important thing there is that when we put it that way, we're emphasizing the continuity. And we're also emphasizing that cognition as a form of sense-making isn't best understood according to the old representational model of input, representation, output. I want to ask you just briefly about the question of subjectivity. Obviously, you argue in your book that subjectivity, if we're trying to understand consciousness, is something that we can't ignore. So is this where you feel like phenomenology comes in? Yes. When we want to understand subjectivity or what philosophers sometimes call phenomenal consciousness, that is consciousness in the sense of felt or lived experience, then I think phenomenology becomes unavoidable because the phenomenon that we're trying to understand is one that has to be described from a subjective point of view in order even to have a sense of what the phenomenon is. And the job of phenomenology, or one of the jobs of phenomenology, is to get some precision and clarity about the description of subjective experience from within. If we want to be more concrete about it, suppose as cognitive neuroscientists were interested in understanding the neural systems or processes that are critically important for our having a sense of self. By sense of self, I mean a lived experience or feeling of self. Well, in order to know what forms that lived experience or feeling of self can take, we need to have a phenomenological account of our self-experience to guide the neuroscientist in even knowing what to look for. So this is a way in which neuroscience and phenomenology can work together. But it means that phenomenology is critically important, you could say methodologically, for getting a handle on the very phenomenon that we're trying to understand and investigate when it comes to subjectivity. To just give an oversimplification, perhaps, you're talking about a method for creating first-person data? 
I would say a method for enriching the, yeah, the information that we have about consciousness or about our subjective experience. First-person data is one way to put it. I sometimes use that phrase, but it sometimes can invite misunderstanding because people then think, oh, it's some kind of special hidden inward data. And I don't really mean that. I mean that it's information that we gain or that we acquire through a careful investigation of experience from the first person perspective. So in that sense, we could call it first person data. Well, I think we're unfortunately running out of time and we've just barely scratched the surface of your fascinating book. What have we left out that you really think we need to mention? We've covered a lot of ground. I suppose maybe I would say that one of the things that I'm working a lot on now and that really emerges in, I think it's actually the third part of Mind and Life, is the idea of neurophenomenology, which is what I was just talking about, which is putting together a phenomenological investigation of consciousness with a cognitive neuroscientific investigation. And the book that I'm working on now, a new book, is based really on a neurophenomenological investigation or exploration of consciousness. So I would just maybe point to that as one of the forward-looking or future-looking steps of this thinking, at least for me, and that I think has gathered interest from other groups and other people as well, is this idea of a neurophenomenological investigation of consciousness. By that, you mean combining the phenomenological approach with neuroscience? Exactly. But doing it in a way that's much more methodologically rich and developed than what's been done up to this point. And by that, I mean using phenomenology to actually devise various kinds of neuroscience experiments. And then in the neuroscience experiments, working with individuals who are able to report and describe their experience with some precision. Because most of the experiments we do in psychology or neuroscience are done on our first year you know, undergraduate students who have to sit in the lab and run the experiment for a course credit and not to put them down at all. But if we want to really plumb the depth, of human consciousness, working with individuals who maybe have some more experience with systematically investigating and describing their experience, that's something that I think could advance the field. Yeah, and you have some excellent examples of that in the book that I'll refer listeners to. Is there anything that you'd just like to sum up with that you'd like to leave my listeners with? It's a very exciting time for this kind of work. The embodied cognition movement in cognitive science is is not a fringe movement anymore. It's very well established and it interacts with other perspectives, including older, more classical perspectives in very fertile ways. And the work that's being done on consciousness and subjectivity and psychology and neuroscience and bringing phenomenology into that investigation and, and also bringing in things like methods of mind training or mental training from meditative traditions. I mean, all of this is really just getting going. So it's a very exciting time. So for younger listeners or for students, it's a great time to be in this field. So I always ask my guests for advice for students, and I want to ask you a specific question. And then if you have more general advice, you can give that too. But when I have interviewed older philosophers of mine, say, for example, like Patricia Churchland, she mentioned that the reason she went into philosophy was because at the time she was coming along, science wasn't ready to address the question of consciousness. And that was what she was interested in, or even mind, really. And that's changed. Now consciousness is becoming a legitimate area of study for neuroscience. So how does a student decide whether they want to go, for example, because I have students doing both, into philosophy versus science? Well, I think that's really 
I mean, in many ways, that's a very pragmatic decision. And that is, you know, when you go to graduate school and then, you know, you get a, a research or a teaching position, you need to ask yourself, what is my home base going to be? Am I mainly interested in reading philosophy, writing philosophy, and talking to philosophers, even if I'm also doing it in concert with people in cognitive science? Or do I want to be an experimentalist? Do I want to be in the lab, in the culture of a lab where it's very much teamwork and running experiments? So part of it is it's almost a temperamental difference. What kind of life activity intellectually do you want to have as your home base? And that's just going to differ depending on the individual. I would say, though, that more and more there are programs in philosophy and also in neuroscience and psychology where you can you know, have your home base in one of those disciplines and really learn the craft of that discipline while interacting quite extensively with people in other disciplines. And that wasn't possible 20 or 30 years ago, and it's really much more becoming the norm. The two key things, I think, for a student are where are you going to be most comfortable intellectually in terms of your home base? And then secondly, go to a program or go to a university where there's a culture of interaction with other disciplines and other departments. Well, those sound like two key pieces of advice. Thank you. Evan, I've really enjoyed talking to you. How long is it going to be till your next book comes out? I'm hoping it will be out in the fall of 2013. I'm just in the last stages of writing the manuscript. The book is called Waking, Dreaming, Being, New Light on the Self and Consciousness from Neuroscience, Meditation, and Philosophy. And Columbia University Press will be the publisher. And as I say, I hope it'll be out in fall 2013. I will look forward to reading it and maybe we'll be able to get back together. That would be lovely. I want to thank Dr. Evan Thompson for taking the time to talk with us on the Brain Science Podcast. Before I start reviewing some of the key ideas from today's interview, I want to remind you that this conversation actually relates to several topics that have been featured on previous episodes of the Brain Science Podcast. The most obvious one is, of course, embodied cognition, and you might also consider this to be part of my ongoing interest in philosophy of mind. In addition, I intended for this episode to be a follow-up of my recent interview with Terence Deacon, which was episode 47 of Books and Ideas. This interview is also available in the feed for the Brain Science Podcast. Both Deacon and Thompson take a similar approach to the idea of emergence, which I actually began discussing way back in episode 53. I'm not going to bore you by listing all the related episodes but I want to remind you that I will have a list of related episodes in the show notes at brainsciencepodcast.com, which is also where you can find the free episode transcript. As I noted both before and during the interview, Dr. Thompson was the co-author of one of the pioneering books about embodied cognition, The Embodied Mind, which was originally published in 1991. This more recent book that we talked about today, Mind in Life, is a follow-up. I enjoyed hearing about how Thompson met his co-author Francisco Varela when he was a teenager and then had the opportunity to work with him when he was still a student. So we started our conversation by reviewing some of the key ideas from the embodied mind. The key concept of embodied cognition is that our mind is shaped by our body and the way it interacts with the world around us. We are not passive recipients of sensory information. Perception is shaped by how we move in the world. 
Dr. Varela and Dr. Thompson chose the word inactive, which is spelled E-N-A-C-T-I-V-E, to emphasize the importance of action. As Thompson said, cognition, particularly perception, is an active process, or inactive, E-N-A-C-T-I-V-E, because it depends on having a body with certain kinds of sensory, motor skills, and habits. According to Thompson, the inactive approach has two important threats. One is the idea that the mind has an active or interactive relationship to the body, and the second is that the mind is not representational. That is, the mind is not acting on some representation of the world that exists in the head because the mind of the animal or person is not a passive representer of the environment. So the inactive approach is a movement away from representation toward action or interaction. I mentioned the term umwelt, which was a term coined early in the 20th century to represent the idea that every animal's world is a direct result of how it interacts with the world. For example, the world we inhabit is very different from that of our dog because the dog's world is dominated by smell, while ours is usually dominated by sight. Thompson quoted Lawrence Shapiro, who I interviewed back in episode 73, as describing embodied cognition as having the working assumption that the way we cognize the world is strongly shaped by the kinds of bodies we have. And one of the problems with the early approaches of cognitive science, that is, computationalism and connectionism, was that they both tended to be pursued independently from biology. And as I noted, those who were working in robotics made a very valuable contribution because their work showed that implementation does matter. That is, the hardware is just as important as the software. If you want to learn more about this, I refer you back to my interview with Rolf Pfeiffer. We also spent a bit of time talking about phenomenology. In the context of embodied cognition, phenomenology points to the importance of subjective experience. What is it like to have a mind? Neurophenomenology refers to an approach to neuroscience that incorporates information about experience. In particular, it seeks to train experimental subjects to describe their experience using terms from phenomenology so that it will be possible to compare results between subjects. One reason that this is important is often when analyzing something like fMRI data, it can be difficult to distinguish between what is noise and what is real. So, for example, if a particular signal consistently correlates with the experiential reports of subjects, it's more likely to represent a true correlation compared to the same signal without such reports. Obviously, neurophenomenology is a relatively new approach. It will be interesting to see if the use of the principles of phenomenology can address some of the problems we discussed earlier this year when we talked with Dr. William Utal about the problems with fMRI. So I look forward to talking to Thompson again when he publishes his next book that gets into this in more detail. While phenomenology might seem rather esoteric, the main theme of mind and life is not. As Thompson said, the core idea is that we can trace a continuous path from the emergence of life into the emergence of mind and the emergence of consciousness and subjectivity. 
One of the guiding ideas that runs through this book is the idea of self-organization and how using the tools from the study of self-organizing systems can help us understand cognition and perception. We talked briefly about autonomous systems. Thompson defined an autonomous system as one that creates itself through interactions with its environment. We really didn't have a chance to emphasize how important this is in terms of understanding why the mind is different from the computational model envisioned by early cognitive scientists. But we did talk about autopoiesis, which is a special kind of autonomy exemplified by a living cell. An autopoietic system is one that creates its own boundary. This matters because now we have the beginnings of self, long before the emergence of awareness. I wish we could have spent more time talking about how the use of dynamic systems theory relates to autonomous systems, but we did touch briefly on the fact that dynamic systems theory is a tool that allows us to get a handle on systems that are nonlinear that is, systems that are highly dependent on initial conditions. Living systems are dynamic systems, but this is also what allows them to be resilient and adaptable. Thompson mentioned that dynamic systems also depend critically on noise as a source of adaptability, which led us to a brief discussion of metastability, which is actually a key feature of living systems and especially the nervous system. Thompson talked about how a metastable system never settles into a state in a classical sense, but rather moves from one transient to another. The reason this is important is that it explains how the nervous system can produce its own spontaneous activity rather than being dependent on external inputs. I will have some references in the show notes for those of you who want to get into the more technical details of metastability. Returning once again to the theme of continuity, when I asked Thompson about cognition, he said, quote, I would say living systems are sense-making systems and cognition is a form of sense-making, end quote. If we look at cognition as a form of sense-making, it isn't best understood according to the representational model, input, representation, output. However, it's important to note that Thompson does not propose that all life is conscious. On page 162 of Mind and Life, he says, It is important to situate consciousness in relationship to dynamic unconscious processes of life regulation. This effort becomes difficult, perhaps impossible, if one projects consciousness down to the cellular level. I want to make a few more comments about the book, Mind in Life, Biology, Phenomenology, and the Science of Mind. It's not light reading, but I do think it's must-reading for students of neuroscience and especially for those who are interested in philosophy of mind. If you have enjoyed our past discussions of embodied cognition, you will find that this book takes the discussion to a much deeper level. Thompson mentioned that Mind in Life has three threads, a discussion of the inactive approach to cognition, a discussion of phenomenology and neurophenomenology, and also a discussion of the evolution of the mind. In today's interview, we focused mainly on the first thread, but I want to mention that the book contains an early chapter on emergence of the mind that I think is one of the clearest I've ever read. There's also an excellent appendix called Emergence and the Problem of Downward Causation, which addresses some of the issues we considered back in episode 53, the one about the book, Did My Neurons Make Me Do It? During the interview, we touched briefly on phenomenology, 
But Mind and Life gets into this in great detail. There is also an appendix that explains why Thompson has changed his position with regard to the work of Herschel compared to the first book, The Embodied Mind. That will be of particular interest to those of you who read The Embodied Mind and to those of you who are interested in philosophy of mind or have backgrounds in philosophy. If you've read anything by Daniel Dennett, you'll be interested in how Thompson counters some of Dennett's writings against phenomenology. Finally, we didn't touch on evolution at all, though it is a very important theme that runs through mind and life. I'd especially like to mention Chapter 7, which is entitled Laying Down a Path in Walking, Development and Evolution. I could easily devote a whole podcast to this chapter, but I only have time to mention that this chapter includes a detailed attack on what Thompson calls the genocentric approach to evolution, which is the approach promoted by writers like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett. One reason that Thompson attacks this approach is that he feels that, like computationalism, genocentrism perpetuates the dualisms of hardware versus software, matter versus information, body versus mind, etc. The inactive approach championed by Thompson is more compatible with what is known as developmental systems theory. Developmental systems theory is an approach to evolution that sees the life cycle as the fundamental unit of evolution instead of the gene. Thompson also says in this chapter that according to the inactive viewpoint, natural selection is an emergent consequence of autopoiesis, not its cause. So he sees the emergence of the autopoietic cell as the central event in the origin of life because it represents the transition to basic autonomy and thus from non-life to life. This viewpoint proposes that self-organization and natural selection are not opposed, but are actually interwoven aspects of a single process of inactive evolution. Of course, he notes that similar ideas have been proposed by other writers like Stuart Kaufman. This is certainly one of those times when trying to summarize a book is rather inadequate, but I hope I've given you a sense of how mind and life fits into our ongoing exploration of the brain, mind, and consciousness. There's a great deal of overlap between the ideas of Evan Thompson and those of Terence Deacon. But unlike Deacon, Thompson has concluded that the tools of dynamic systems are adequate to explain the emergence of mind. He sees a deep continuity between the emergence of life and the emergence of mind, so he doesn't feel that there's another level of explanation required. Even so, some of you may feel that this discussion has generated as many questions as answers especially if you're new to these ideas. I recommend checking out the show notes for the related episodes because there is no way that I could make this episode totally standalone. And don't forget that there are free transcripts for every episode. The transcripts are great if you want to go back and look for specific details from old episodes or if you don't have time to re-listen. Next month, I'm going to be talking about Antonio Damasio's recent book, Self Comes to Mind, constructing the conscious brain. This will give us a chance to revisit some of the ideas I've talked about today, and it will prepare us for the upcoming interview that I have planned with Jock Panksip. I want to remind you that I am going to be in Philadelphia October 16th through 21st 
at the American Academy of Family Physicians meeting. So if you live in Philadelphia or you're going to be in the area and would like to get together, please do drop me an email. Also, I'm continuing to work with a couple of vendors producing continuing education credits for some of the episodes of the Brain Science Podcast. Right now, I haven't really got a page for this on the website yet, so if you want to know more about that, just drop me an email. Right now, the credits are only available for psychologists, but I hope that we'll be able to expand this in the future. I want to take a moment to thank those of you who have bought my ebook, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. It's still only available on Kindle, but if you send me your receipt from Amazon, I will send you the PDF if you need to read it on a different type device. And if you have read the book, don't forget to post a review either on Amazon or at goodreads.com. I also want to take a moment to thank those of you who make donations to help support my work. If you're interested in helping out, there's a tab labeled Donations on the website right underneath the logo. Even if you can't donate money, you can always post reviews either on your own website or your favorite social sites. We do have a fan page on Facebook, a Google Plus page, and a discussion forum on Goodreads. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Brain Science Podcast for free using any podcasting client, including various apps for the iPhone and other mobile devices. But since the Brain Science Podcast only comes out about once a month, I know it's easy to miss episodes. So go to the website, brainsciencepodcast.com, and sign up for my newsletter, and that way you'll get show notes automatically and you won't miss any episodes. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me at docartemis at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter where I'm also Doc Artemis. That's spelled D-O-C-A-R-T-E-M-I-S. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again soon. The Brain Science Podcast is copyright 2012, Virginia Campbell, M.D. You may copy this podcast to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at docartemis at gmail.com. <laughs>